You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Ranger trials as one. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, Episode 30. I'm your host, Sarah, with my co-host, Ken Fader. And today, we're discussing folklore, mythology, and oral histories. We're going to look at how they are interpreted by modern people to fit into their ideologies. And we're going to look at how they're used in actual archaeology, in interpretation of sites and the histories of the cultures that we study. Get ready to think critically! Funny beady blokes you will see are a staple of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm here with Ken. How are you doing? I'm great, Sarah. How are you? I'm doing great. I just bought a new car, so everything's wonderful. There you go. You know, like... Do you have to stop eating now for like a couple of years while you pay it off? Oh, no. Um, this is being covered by the insurance company of the guy that totaled my last car. Oh, so how it costs me nothing. Very convenient. <laughs> yeah, well, joke's on them. I had to replace that car anyway. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> no, Sarah, people are listening to this podcast. You're going to get in trouble. No, the, they paid me what the car was worth. I mean, it's worth what it was worth. Cool. Anyway, um, Today, we are going to discuss uh, oral, hist- oral histories and mythology, how they're used in popular media, uh, especially shows that support alternative history concepts, and then we're going to explain how they're actually used within the field sure. of archaeology. So, my pet peeve, because this is basically a soapbox episode... Uh, my pet peeve is when shows specifically like Ancient Aliens or authors like Eric Von Daniken misinterpret a mythology or an oral history and say, you know, here's some funny pictures that I don't understand by a culture that I don't know anything about. Therefore, it supports my theory of aliens. Right. Sure. Sure. I, I, there are so much of that is a problem of context. Is that it really, if you yeah. if you pull out say a piece of art or you pull out a story that's told over generations, you pull it away from its cultural context, you can make it sound like practically anything. And it's important. Right. I mean, it's like we've talked about this a little bit before, the, you know, the Palenque sarcophagus lid. If you don't know exactly. anything at all about Maya mythology and Maya <coughs> excuse me, origin stories or, or the uh, concept of a Maya heaven, you, you take that, if you, you strip it from its cultural context, you can convince yourself, oh, my God, from my 21st century perspective, that looks like a guy in a spaceship. But that is not the way folklore should be interpreted or, or how it should be used um, in attempting to figure out what the past was really like. No, for, folklore and um, oral <laughs> histories and cultural mythologies are very important, actually, to the field of archaeology. They give us a lot of clues sometimes actual physical clues and and sometimes they are just a way for us to understand the group of people that we're studying and we should always rely to those first before we start making our own assumptions onto objects because especially when it comes to interpreting our yeah archaeological artifacts sometimes we don't know what we're looking at but when you show it to a culture someone from that culture they're like oh that's x you know, because they, they immediately know yeah, what exactly, it is. Exactly. So I've got just just if I can give you just a very brief story of, of one of these um, these bits of folklore that I encountered. Uh, yeah. You know, folks who listen to the podcast know that I've been working on this fifty sites project and book. And in fact, we devoted one of the the podcast episodes to a couple of those sites: is Mesa Verde and Horseshoe Canyon. Well, in those fifty sites, I also saw a place up in um, Washington State, right on the border of Washington and Oregon along the Columbia River. And it's an amazing set of pieces of rock art. And rock art's one of those things where, you know, archeologists really have to rely on the stories, the, the oral histories and oral traditions told by the people 
alive today whose ancestors produced that rock art. And that's very helpful. And there's this wonderful, it's a lovely story. And forgive me for, 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 for getting into my storyteller mode. But in any event, the, 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 first of all, the rock art, it's around a place called Horse Thief Lake, which is an artificial lake. This was the Columbia River, which has been um, dammed up along the river in several places to produce um, electricity, hydro, hydroelectric projects. And I think it was the 1950s, they were putting this dam um, across the Columbia. And there were a whole bunch of, of um, pieces of rock art that were going to be inundated by the rising waters of the um, the impounded lake. And I know a lot of folks listening to the podcast probably are aware of the fact that when they did this along the Nile in Egypt, uh, that when they built the Aswan Dam, they actually moved Abu Simbel, which is a very, very well-known, famous, amazing, um, uh, monumentally scaled set of carvings of Ramses yeah. and, and other figures. Um, they actually moved the entire and this is many, many thousands of tons, they moved, they cut them up into pieces and moved them to be up above the floodwaters of the river. Well, they kind of did that along the Columbia River with a lot of the rock art. They actually had guys with jackhammers come in, and I know this is not the best solution, but they jackhammered out a bunch of rock art. And you can go and see these things. They've been placed along an artificial petroglyph trail. Uh, These things are, yes, they are bereft of their context. They've been removed from their original locations. But at least the rock art has been salvaged. Um, were they documented before they oh, were made? Oh, yeah, yeah. There was photographic documentation, and it was pretty well documented. So the art itself... So it's not a total loss, yeah, Exactly. But the cool thing is, some of the most um, uh, significant and impressive of the rock art was high up enough on this cliff wall that it was allowed to... It, it could remain in place. It was not inundated. And one of these in particular is... Uh, just an absolutely gorgeous piece of rock art. If you're familiar with the art of the Northwest Coast, the Pukkiutal Indians and other other tribes in the Northwest, the the, the guys who, who built the, the totem poles, this piece of rock art doesn't look anything like the stuff you see in the Southwest or in the, the Far West. It looks like Northwest Coast Indian art. So there's this beautiful image. And the now, archaeologists look at this, and it's gorgeous. It's like three feet across, and it's got these gigantic eyes and these pointed-up ears. And as an archaeologist, I look at that, and I go, I have no idea. What's that about? It's beautiful. It looks like an, a kind of a combination of an animal and a human. And what's the point of it? Well, here's the story that the Native people in the 20th century told of this piece of rock art that probably is 500 years old. They say their village, and we know that their village was located just downslope from where this rock art is located, and the village is now completely inundated by the, by the waters of the rising lake. And the story they tell is that many, many years ago, there was a chief, and it's a woman. She's a woman chief, and she was very uh-huh. great and very wise, and she was getting older. And she was very concerned about what would happen when she died, who could take her place. And so she was having, she was having trouble sleeping and she would, would walk the, the cliff above the village to see, to, you know, to look over her people and, and consider what was going to happen when she passed away. Um, and one, during one of these excursions, she was approached by coyote. And in many Native American cultures, coyote is viewed as a trickster. He's a guy, he's not an evil guy, but he's a guy who you can't really trust. And we're talking about a coyote who can talk, uh, can speak um, human language. And so while, yeah, she's, right, while she's walking along this cliff, coyote approaches her and coyote says, chief, what's, what seems to be your trouble? Why are you walking this cliff? Why can't you sleep? And she turns to coyote and says, well, coyote, um, I love my people. I love my village, but I am very concerned. I can't be the chief forever. Someday I'm going to die, and who's going to take my place? And who can watch over my people? And Coyote, who's always thinking about tricks, says to the chief, well, you know, I think I can solve this for you. Now, of course, she's very suspicious about Coyote. So what can you do? And Coyote says, well, I can make it possible for you to watch over your village forever. And she says to Coyote, well, do you mean I can be immortal? And Coyote kind of avoids the answer, kind of, you know, oh, well, you can watch over your village forever. Now, here's the deal. Coyote thinks he's playing a trick on her. She is actually playing a trick on Coyote. She knows 
what she wants Coyote to do. So Coyote says to her, if you agree, I will make it possible for you to watch over your people forever. And she says, okay, I agree. Coyote says, close your eyes. And then Coyote kills her. But, right. but as she dies, he harvests her spirit and then <laughs> fuses her spirit to the rock overlooking the village. And says to her as he's laughing, well, now you'll be able to watch over your village forever. And he walks away. The next day, that morning, the people wake up in the village. They say, where's our chief? And they, they can't find her. But somebody looks at the cliff above the village and says, there's a face. There's a face overlooking the village. And they all run up and they see this amazing face etched into the rock. And they say, that's the spirit of our chief. She's there and she'll be there forever. They give her a name. Sagaglalal, which in their language means she who watches. And now they say, now at least we know that in the spirit world, she will always be watching over our village. Now that's an incredibly moving. I, I've, I've been there. I've seen it. It's an amazing piece of rock art, but it's made all the more amazing by the story told by the descendants of the people who actually made that rock art. Now it gives a, was there really a woman chief? Maybe. Was there really a woman chief who was walking the, the hills there concerned about what was going to happen when she died? Maybe. Was there a woman chief who walked over the hills and Coyote approached her with this deal? I don't know about that. But nevertheless, doesn't that piece of folklore give us a unique perspective on how the people who actually produced that art, the descendants of those people, how they viewed, what they viewed as the significance of that piece of art. It's not just art for art's sake. It's an image of a, a well-respected and powerful chief who now will forever watch over our village. I mean, ultimately, the irony there, of course, is that, well, now what she's watching over is a big, fat lake that destroyed the remnants of her village. So it didn't work, uh, ultimately, into the 20th century. But it's a really cool piece of folklore. And archaeologists shouldn't ignore that or belittle that. That's a really important perspective providing the context by the, the, the internal context, the context of the, the, the folks who made the art, how they viewed that piece of art. And that's extremely important from an archaeological perspective. It is. And it's a really important, I mean, it's a, it's a really great example of what we're talking about. Because I've, I've looked up some pictures of it. In, Isn't she beautiful? I mean, she really is gorgeous. Well, I think if we're looking at the same thing, it kind of looks like a raccoon. You know, I, I, it's because it's got the pointy ears, right? Just... Yeah, it's got the little, like, kind of, or maybe it's a bear, because it's got, like, a little bear. Well, at least that's how I would interpret right. it, but I'm not, like, like we're saying, I'm not these people. Right. And that's that's a super important point. When the people who produce the art say, this is our story, that's a completely different thing than somebody from a different society, different culture looks and says, you know, I think that's a spaceman, or I think right. that's a giant, or I think that's... Any one of a number of other, that's Bigfoot. That really that 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 kind of context, I don't think gets moves forward the conversation at all. And that's really what we're talking about. Um, you know, when the Maya tell us that's that's Pakal, he's poised between life and death. I take that as I, I take that a lot more seriously as a as an important perspective more so than somebody you know a swiss author saying well no 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 it looks like a spaceman but and doesn't uh the pakal uh, coffin isn't the story i mean there's words the petroglyphs oh, yeah. around it are describing the scene right well what what's what's going on in, in the case of pakal it's a really that the pakal context is incredibly cool pakal his father was not the king or chief of the city of Palenque. He did not inherit his kingship through his father, which is what you're what was supposed to have happened. What happens mm -hmm. is he actually inherited it through his mother. And this gave the Maya kind of a problem because that's not the way it's supposed to happen. You're supposed to inherit the kingship from your mother. There was no um, male in the, in the family line who could uh, uh, ascend to the throne. So what happens is the Maya kind of after the fact say that this that the mother, Pakal's mother, her name, her name was uh, Lady Beastie, is the translation of her name. They wow. said that she was actually uh, a goddess. She wasn't actually a, a human being. 
She actually was a goddess. And so what they do on the, the Maya in burying Pakal, Pakal, he ascended to the throne when he was like, I don't know, nine or 10 years old. Um, he really, his mother was the power behind the throne. She was the de facto ruler until he yeah. reached, I think when he was 40, she died. And there's actually some Maya art showing Lady Beastie handing Pakal the crown of kingship for the city of Palenque. Um, and what it says around the edge of that is it's all about, it's like a justification or rationalization for why Pakal deserved to be the king. So it's it's like a, a genealogy showing, well, wait a minute. Okay, his father wasn't the king, but Lady Beastie was related to this guy, was related to this guy, and they, and, and ultimately part of that bloodline was was uh, was godly. Um, and so it's 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 almost like a justification for why Pakal got to be the king. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really obvious. This is, it has nothing whatsoever to do with guys from outer space coming down. It has nothing whatsoever to do with rocket ships. The Maya themselves are explaining why this guy was king and why he is now poised to go to heaven. Right. And the, the thing is, though, as, as we're saying, we get that context by reading what the Maya said about Pakal and Pakal's mother. We don't get any useful context by kind of looking at it with our head tilted one way and our eyes, one eye closed and saying, well, you know what? You know what it looks like to me? It looks like a rocket ship. That's not right. the way you do science. You don't do no, science. No, because it's it's not up to, I mean, it's up to us to give it meaning in that we're interpreting it. It's not up to us to assign the original meaning to it. Right. In other words, it's, Listen, I'm not going to say, well, so therefore, because the Maya said that Lady Beastie was, in fact, um, uh, uh, had, had godly blood or was somehow not a human being, but in fact a, 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 a god spirit. Uh, I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying that this is what the, the Maya said about Pakal and Lady Beastie, and it's all about his, his legitimacy uh, ascending to the throne and why his son therefore would be the, the logical person to to become the king after his death so right so, but that's that's meaningful and a reasonable thing to wonder about and to analyze but again it's it's so much of this is about people who don't know anything about the culture who cannot interpret these things within the context of the culture that produced it it, right. It's just not really helpful for somebody in the 20th or 21st century to say, based on what I know, this is how I'm going to interpret something that somebody produced um, in AD 650. Let's chew over Pakal a little bit more because we, we have mentioned him in, in, right. in previous episodes kind of as a, a throwaway comment about, you know, ancient aliens and that kind of interpretation. Sure. But for a greater... To make it a deeper topic, we should discuss why we know the imagery. I mean, yeah, there's the the story around it explaining who Pakal was and more importantly who his mother is and why this line of descent is valid for the kingdom, right. uh, for kingship. But more importantly, the the image itself on is a very complicated image. Um, right. It's really pretty too. If you've never seen it, I'm linking it so you guys can all go look at Wikipedia. But I mean, well, let's let's take Von Daniken's. Uh, yeah, we got a couple minutes here before the first sure. break, so let's let's take Von Daniken's argument apart. That you know, he looks at this image and he sees uh, an astronaut inside a spaceship, and he's flipping some switches, and right. there's like I don't know, he's got all kinds of crazy things that he sees in the clouds here. But the way it's been interpreted by archaeologists who are familiar with the Mayan culture is that this is a great king. He's on his deathbed and his soul is escaping into, is ascending into heaven. Right. And one of the main reasons that we know that we can confidently translate this image this way is not just because we've talked with, the Mayans are still around by the way, um, but we've also got other images that can back this image up. 
Right, exactly. The, so we have other things as references right. that help us interpret I mean, it's, this it's, image. It is fair, it is more than fair to say that the image on the on Pakal's sarcophagus lid is unique as a whole, as a piece of yes. art. You, don't, you won't see anything else like that in all of the Maya art. However, Probably if not. you pick it apart, every one of the images that are on, the, in the individual images that together make the whole scene, every one of them you will see in other pieces of art thoroughly comprehensible. So, for example, if you look at the, um, at the sarcophagus lid, there very clearly is a cross or a cross-shaped device, which is kind of behind Pakal. So there's a, um, if you look at the way Pakal is along the long axis of the lid, there's a long um, stake that runs the almost the length of it, and then three quarters of the way up, there's a cross piece. So it looks like a Christian cross. However, yeah. we do know Roughly, from yes. other pieces of art, Maya art, that that's their um, symbolic representation of a tree called the Saba tree, which in fact... The Maya believed they really are real trees, and they're really, really tall and skinny, and they hold up heaven. So mm -hmm. those trees, now, obviously, if you don't know that, this weird um, uh, figure in the back of Pakal sarcophagus doesn't make any sense. But if you right. recognize Maya iconography, and you recognize what the Maya presented in other works of art and what they said about it, you know, okay, well, that's the same tree. So that makes sense. There's Pakal, his soul suspended between the underworld and the Maya version of heaven, and the, that heaven is supported by this this kind of mystical, um, symbolic tree that's holding up the heaven. The other thing that's kind of cool is that that at the very top of the the rocket ship that Vandana talks about, there's an image of a bird. It's a Quetzal yeah. bird. The Quetzal bird is the symbol, is symbolic of Maya heaven. So clearly the spirit of Pakal, which is he's on his way to heaven, he's ascending the Saba tree up to heaven and waiting for them there in heaven is the symbol of heaven, the Quetzal bird. Now, again, this is not stuff that archaeologists have looked at the, or, or, or Mayanists have looked at this sarcophagus lid and made up a story. It's based on things the Maya themselves said, based on, in terms of what they've written based on the stories told in the few Maya books that still exist, like the Popol Vuh, based on other sites with similar iconography. So this is all part of a piece where when you look at it with that con within that context and knowing something about Maya iconography and Maya ideology, it all makes sense internally. Right. It doesn't require some incredibly so and out, it doesn't does, does not allow for an outsider who knows none of that to say right yeah, but it looks like a rocket to me my my here's my issue about the pakal sarcophagus lid and this is true of a lot of the stuff that van donigan talks about and that giorgio Tsoukalos talks about and that is and I, i've had this argument with people where i say look if i were to show you the a photograph of the palenque sarcophagus lid and if you didn't know anything about what Von Donegan said, if you didn't know anything about what ancient aliens have said, and all I asked you was, what does it look like to you? Sarah, I got to believe that out of a thousand people, I don't think one person would say, well, that looks like a guy in a rocket ship. It really no. doesn't. But then if somebody says, but if somebody primes you to say, I think that looks like a rocket ship. Well, then you start saying, oh, 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 okay. And, you know, if you, have to, if you have to be primed, if somebody has to tell you it looks like a rocket ship before you see the rocket ship, ain't no rocket ship. Um, you know, I, I've been primed to see it, and I know that I'm skeptical, and I've blah, blah, blah. But this thing's never looked like a rocket it, ship. It, it really doesn't. Um, no, it really doesn't. And like for, and for example, um, one of the things that, that Van Donegan says is that, that the, on, his, on the guy's head, there are these tubes, and he considers them to be breathing tubes. Which is, it's really kind of odd when you think about it, because the, the guy, Pakal himself, the guy portrayed on the sarcophagus lid, lid looks like a human being. So I'm not sure yes. why he needs breathing tubes. And he also says that he's got things sticking out of this, this headdress that he considers to be um, like antennas. That's always bothered me. We are now at a point with cell phone technology where 
I got an iPhone. I don't have an antenna. <laughs> you would think that yeah. people who can who can traverse the universe would have more sophisticated technologies for communication. They wouldn't need antennas. But my favorite, and maybe I mentioned this before on the podcast, is that Van Dagen actually says, if you look at, I think it's the left foot of Pakal, he says it appears to be on a pedal, some kind of a control of the rocket yeah, ship. Really, yeah, no. And, but, and, but here's the thing. Wait a minute. A pedal? Is that, for, is that the clutch? Is this a manual transmission rocket ship? It's not. Well, yeah, it must be because he says his hands are also supposed to be flipping switches, like he's steering or something. But, you know, but I, do you see? I, and, the, and and I think at some point, Vanadikan also says he's he appears to be looking through some telescopic device. Oh yeah, and that's what it's supposed I, to be. Yeah. Do you see that? And then he talks even about the the. Uh, I mean, it is as if if you like say the eyepiece is attached to his nose, maybe. And in fact, what what most Mayanists. The, among the the kinds of jewelry that the Maya wore, they wore uh, nose plugs and bones yeah. in their nose and their ears. And every Mayanist who looks at the Palenque sarcophagus and says, based on what that looks like and in other scenes from other pieces of art, it's some kind of a nose plug. It's some kind of a piece of jewelry. Uh, it sure as hell doesn't look like a telescope or any kind no. of sighting device. And then he even talks, Vanagli even talks about the fact that he's wearing some kind of a skin tight um, spacesuit. And again, it's no. like, actually, he looks like he's wearing a little bit of a skirt and it doesn't look like he's wearing a, 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 a top at all. So, but yeah. the, the bottom line here is I think that anybody who is fair and looks at that image does not see a guy in a rocket ship. It's, it's, it's from, from the perspective of somebody who's not a Mayanist and not a Maya, it's not familiar with the art, not familiar with the iconography, and not familiar with the ideology, it, I, I, I will grant you, it might look really strange. It looks different because it doesn't look like something that's typical in Western art. But that yeah. doesn't mean that, 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 that doesn't mean that it's legitimate to simply look at it and make up a story that's based on kind of 20, and it's not even 21st century um, rocketry. It's more like kind of mid 20th century guys with pedals and bizarre tubes coming out of their heads. Um, I think my biggest problem with not just Pakal sarcophagus, but a lot of uh, European, uh, basically a bunch of white guy interpretation of Native American um, right. uh, mythology and stuff is that they're totally, especially when it comes to images, because there's very rarely um, – writing as we recognize it associated with like uh, um, petroglyphs oh, yeah, and that right, kind of exactly. um, But so people will just look at the image and reinterpret it as they need it to be interpreted to further their own opinion. Sure. What I dislike about it is it completely disregards any cultural context put there by the people who originally right. created yeah. it. And it just completely ignores any kind of anything except what you're trying to push forward as your personal opinion. Right. Like you haven't even done the research, even even just cursory uh, research, right. you know. And, but here's something that I think as archaeologists we need to admit: archaeologists have not always been really good at doing that either. So that for for many Native Americans. For a very long time, and I think that that's dissipating now. There's been yeah. this belief that you know what archaeologists think that they own our story. They come in, they dig, they tell their story. They think that we're that we have nothing to contribute to that, and that archaeologists have been guilty of that of of being the outsiders looking at these people like under a microscope and saying we don't care about what you say. We're going to use this scientific approach. Um, and the deal is archaeologists need to – we continue to need to do a better job, but I think we are doing a better job of saying, well, listen, if we're going to look at rock art, we need to understand the context and the perspective of the people who, for right. whom this is part of their culture. Right. Uh, and um, that doesn't mean – and we can talk about this later on – when um, Vine Deloria, who was a very well-known Native American activist and a lawyer who wrote a bunch of books and who was very much – opposed to the work of, I think, of a lot of archaeologists and yeah. um, disputed what I think are now indisputable facts, um, 
and, and did this from the perspective of, hey, I'm a Native American and your, your science stories, that's all bullshit made up stories. Our folklore trumps that. That's another issue that we can talk about. And that's still very controversial and, and, and very impactful. Um, but, but, but I think it's fair to say that archaeologists have for too long ignored the, the, the thoughts and the, the stories of the people who were in fact responsible for, whose ancestors were responsible for the sites and artwork that we study. Yeah, uh, we will continue that as soon as we get back from break. The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. And we are back, and I want to change gears just a little bit, because oral histories do not necessarily have to be prehistoric. Um, we have a uh, long-standing tradition, at least in America, and I'm sure other other places, of American folklore. Right. Things like uh, Babe the Blue Ox, Paul Bunyan, Johnny Appleseed, stories that... <laughs> I was always familiar of them when I was a kid. I'm not sure if kids still get told these stories because we got told them at day camp. Oh, yeah. I don't know if kids do day camp so much anymore. I think kids these days get their folklore from cable. Yeah, which is interesting because, you know, a lot of folklore, it started off. Some people say all of the folklore starts off with a real story and then goes from there, which is what makes it a quote unquote tall tale. Right. Um, I don't necessarily believe that there's always a grain of truth in it because I've Taking Johnny Appleseed, for example, we were always taught, you know, Johnny Appleseed was this really go-lucky guy. He liked to eat a bunch of apples, and then he would plant the seeds wherever he went. And that's why there's apple trees all over America. And, uh, you know, knowing what I know about apples now, that's not exactly how that works. So, um, But then my uh, significant other the other day dug up some kind of like the true story of Johnny Appleseed kind of thing on BuzzFeed, I'm sure. And they're talking about how Johnny Appleseed was basically this guy who was really into apple cider and was constantly drunk. And <laughs> there you go. he was basically just like your drunken Uncle Joe that nobody wanted to deal with. So he just got shoved from one side of the country to the other. People just basically throwing him out. And I guess wherever he went, he would attempt to set up a cider or a cidery. That's cool. Uh, to make hard cider wherever he went. So he wasn't exactly spreading the apple seed, but he was spreading apples of a variety. I don't know how true that is, though. Right. That's the problem yeah. with these kind of things, you know, We, which is the real Johnny Appleseed, you know, happy-go-lucky guy who liked to plant yeah. seeds or, you know, the drunk who no one wanted to deal with. There's probably something in between. Uh, probably. Have you noticed this, Sarah? There, there's a whole subgenre of these folk tales that I don't know how to how to um, what how to uh, title it, but famous people, usually bad dudes, who you thought you knew they were killed, actually far outlived when you thought they were killed. So, for example, one of the most famous ones is John Wilkes Booth, right? The guy who assassinates Lincoln, and then a right. few days later he's found in a barn. They they burn the barn down. They shoot him. He's dead. There is an, a continuing, like a hum out there on the internet that no, the guy who died in the barn was somebody else who oh, was yeah. a fake guy, and that John Wilkes Booth actually lived on for years and years and years under an assumed name. I have recently seen the same thing for J I think it's Jesse James. How oh no, the guy killed. And absolutely was not Jesse James, didn't have the right scars, and that the fact the real Jesse James lived well into the 20th century and changed his name and became like the mayor of a town. And yeah. there's always been this, also the story about um, um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, right? 
that they right. really didn't die in that shootout in Brazil, but they returned to America, changed their names, or at least one of them did, and became you know upstanding citizens. And I think that's it's really interesting this this idea that, and, and of course you know Elvis isn't dead, and John Kennedy really wasn't killed, and th- these these folks who somehow managed to attain a level of immortality even though historians, traditional history says, well, no, we know when they died, we know what killed them, and we know where they're buried. I, I think that's, it's, I find it interesting, and it's way beyond my uh, field of expertise to think about and wonder about why people want to embrace that notion that these folks who we think we know when they died and how they died, in fact, far outlived the, the, what traditional history will tell us. Well, I mean, the people that you're mulling over there are all the bad guys we love. They're, oh, they're, um, there's a word for it and I can't think of it. I'm not a folklorist, um, but they're, they're a specific archetype of bad guy where they're like sympathetic, bad, bad guys. Well, I mean, he- or they've just become such legends that everybody's super excited about them. And of course, you know, if you're a hero, they, I mean, they've become heroes, even though they're horrible people. Right. Um, but that's it's that whole, oh, so-and-so, you know, he's so clever, he's so smart, he outwitted everybody and fooled other people into thinking he was dead, when in reality he wasn't. Well, it's, it, it, the thing, too, is that you look at something like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. In most people's minds, well, that's Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Those are right. nice guys, really right. good-looking guys, funny, bright. You know, and it's like, well, yeah, so they, they kind of robbed, but they were nice about it. They, they didn't really want to kill anybody. And so they were, in a sense, he's kind of the anti-hero. And so yes. this notion that, well, maybe they didn't, you know, at the end of the movie, of course, they're, they're, they're loaded for bear and they're going to, they're, I think in Brazil, or maybe Mexico, and they're going to run out and fight off. And the, the, at the, the last scene of the movie, they're not dead yet. I mean, it looks like they're going to get killed, but they're not dead yet. So maybe it's possible that these kind of very kind of adorable criminals, I guess you can call them, that maybe they really live. And, you know, Jesse, and again, I'm pretty sure it was Jesse James, where there, again, there is this story that, no, he didn't really die, that again, he's almost an antihero. He's not a bad guy. You know, he just... Well, almost all of the Western, all of the the quote-unquote cowboy western bad guys are yeah they're all like that and it's like if you ever met these people in real life they are not good people they shoot you as soon as look at you but again probably again yes in terms of especially as a result of movies and television shows there's you know there's a reason why they they did what they did and and they were not really horrible people and wouldn't it be interesting if in fact they far that you know they outlived what traditional history would tell us, but there's a whole subgenre I think of uh, of of these historical myths. It is, but it th- that revisionism is actually a lot what I want to touch on because there's a especially you see it in the fringe groups. There's a lot of taking stories uh, or or oral traditions, especially the older the better. Um, and reinterpreting them so that they are either open-endedly supportive of whatever theory you're trying to sell or downright solidly supporting the theory uh, that you're trying to sell. Um, you see this a lot with, uh, well, I see it a lot with the Bigfoot people. Right. They, they love to take um, especially Native American stories and of of man beasts or cause a lot of, a lot of native American mythologies across the country will have anthropomorphized figures in them. Um, coyote being one raven being another one. I think there's a bear in a couple. And the reason that I'm bringing these up is important because a lot of people will take those and be like, Oh no, no, they're not using that as a figure of speech or as a, an archetype They're Those are literally, man beasts that they're literally talking to and those man beasts are actually 
Bigfoot. Well, yeah, but he, the, the deal that's really interesting there, Sarah, the, the point you bring up is really interesting in that they're really selective. So if they talk yes. about some big hairy guy with, on, on, on two legs, what, that's, that's actually a story of Bigfoot. But then if ravens can talk and coyotes walk on two feet and can talk, are there also bipedal coyotes who speak human language? Are there also large ravens who speak human language? Or wolves. So in other words, you can't be so selective. Well, you know, are there not also, you know, big big paws and big claws? Um, it, it just it doesn't make a, a whole lot of sense. And about that, that, another interesting point is that if you look at on the, the other side of the world in Tibet um, and Nepal, you look at stories of the abominable snowman. Some of those are 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 very clearly in the same realm as our stories of the boogeyman in other words right these are these are stories told by adults to children about why you should not misbehave because this bad guy is going to come and get you and so they talk about he's big he's hairy he's got hair all over his face and if you don't he's brush going your, to eat if, you if you don't brush your teeth he's going right. to eat you and i'm and, and, and more seriously, it's a long-standing parental tradition of terrifying your children into obedience. Exactly, but but in, <laughs> in, the, in the case of, of Tibet Nepal, it's more like this is why you shouldn't go out uh, by yourself at night because right. this abominable snowman is going to get you. And actually, it's like, listen, if you have to, if to protect your child, you have to t- give a bullshit story so that he's terrified to go out and do something that's really scary and stupid. Maybe that's not such a terrible idea. Um, but that's but that's where the but again you have to know the context and uh, oh these are just scary stories that people have told their children to prevent them from doing something dumb and getting hurt or killed. Uh, right. And it's not the people telling the stories didn't think these were real. They knew exactly what they were doing when they told the story. But if you don't know the cultural context, you just hear oh they tell people that there is a giant hairy man beast. They take it literally when it was never meant to be taken literally. Well, and you see a lot of this literal, selective literal interpretation and revisionism. Um, uh, I want to say it's with the Bagada, Baga, eh, I can't pronounce it, so I'm not going to. But you see a lot of it, um, again, with the Asian alien peoples, um, with the whole f- fiery chariots oh, sure. right. and the the gods flying space having a, a dog fight in, in the sky where the flying carpets aren't really flying carpets. They're just man's inability to fully describe right. an airplane. And so there there's, you'll hear ancient alien and people say that, you know, what they're really describing is this massive fight that they witnessed in the sky and, the loud noises are really bombs going off, but they were too simplistic to be able to fully describe, you know, a bomb going off. So they made this big flowery story about it. But I being who I am, am perfectly capable of retranslating this entire story away from what it's actually saying into what I need it to be saying for me to have evidence of aliens. Right. And those, those are almost always extremely selective. So in other words, yes. there's this big, long story with lots of details, and they they cherry pick those things that they think sound like a flying saucer. The, the perfect example of that is um, Ezekiel's wheel, which just yes. found the Old Testament of the Bible. And if you select out pieces of it, it sounds like something fiery and spinning that's flying through the air. But what those usually when the, the fringe people tell that story and say, well, that sounds like a, a, a spacecraft. They leave out the fact that in the same story, it talks about this thing has four heads. And I think one's a horse and one's a lion and one's a camel, whatever they are. And so it's like, well, wait a minute. That doesn't sound like a flying saucer. And if you're choosing and picking whatever you want from the story of Ezekiel's wheel, well, that's not science. That's not that doesn't make any sense. You know, why are you not talking about that? Well, you're not talking about that because it doesn't fulfill the preconceived notion that you bring to this whole issue thinking oh yeah well it's got to be a flying saucer so it's no fair to be selective you have to choose you have to take the whole story um when you're doing that kind of an analysis and they don't right it's the the cherry picking is is a huge problem but the the other end of that is is they 
The other problem with this particular practice is they'll choose things that are like the problem with oral histories and the problem with a lot of mythology is if it is written down, it is written down thousands of years after the fact, after they've been passed down from generation to generation. And though studies have shown that oral histories can change very little, they do change. And they really change when you go from an oral history to a written history. And that's where a lot of the reinterpret the, the interpretation uh, happens. Um, a really good example of this is when the Norse mythology was written down. It was um, Snorri Sutherland, I think his name was. Anyway, when he wrote it down, he Christianized a lot of the stories. So he's still telling tales about the gods, but he's reimagining them and reinterpreting them into a Christian mindset. And so things were lost. A lot of stuff was lost in translation. So if you were to pick up um, the poetic edits and try to translate them and try to take them literally, it would be incorrect to do because they are no longer the stories that were being passed down. And you're also not taking into consideration regional differences. Um, this is a known problem with uh, the Old Testament in, uh, specifically. We know that there was like a northern group and a southern group. And when they got together to write the stories that made it into the Old Testament, there was a lot of compromise made between the north's version of the story and the south's version right. of the story. And then that's, that's when Lilith, who was the first woman before Eve... And right. She gets kind of kicked out because she was uppity and kind of Lilith was like the first feminist. When I guess some of the right. folks writing the Bible said, we don't like that story. We don't want Lilith. We don't want the first woman to be an equal to man. We want her to be the helpmate. We want her to be the taken from a rib. So she will be like secondary to him. And so right. there was, yeah, you're right. There was all this kind of compromise. Um, well, the serpent and the, the serpent's also another one of those things. Um, one of the things that I've been told is that the serpent was uh, a leftover image of a prior god who was actually considered a helpful god, uh -huh. which is why he was offering the fruit of the tree of knowledge to the, the two humans. It was kind of one of those, here, I'm here to set you free kind of things. And it, once the story got hammered out, you know, that serpent then becomes Satan and the Satan's tempting the people with the tree of knowledge, which is like the one thing you can't eat. And of course, that's the one thing they want to eat. Listen, and, you know, I, I, I don't want to get anybody really mad at me. But, Too late. But, but, you know, bottom line here is that's it's a pretty fucked up story. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. The story but itself think, is messed think up. Think about it. That the most horrible <laughs> thing that Adam and Eve want is they want knowledge. And this, this is a story about how that's a bad thing. God damn it. You want knowledge. <laughs> Literally. You want to be ignorant. And when they and then when they say, hey, you know what? We're going to eat from this tree because it's a tree, it, the, the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge, that that's a bad thing? What kind of a lesson is that? So, so we should be all be ignorant because that's how God wants us to be. Now, I'm sure there are religious people who would say, no, Fader, you got it all wrong. But when I read that, I read it as, pretty messed up that there's that but the, the lesson there is you're going to get screwed if you eat from the eat a, the fruit from the tree of knowledge when my god i'm a college professor i'm <laughs> part of that industry so i know another thing about that too is and it, your discussion of the norris reminded me of this is that um in one of my classes when we talk about um creation stories and i ask every kid in the class to go online, find a creation story from a non-Western uh, a non-Western culture, and then briefly describe it and ask a bunch of questions about it. And every once in a while, I'll get a kid who says, "Well, I did a Native American culture," and and then they they talk about us, and then they present a story that oh my God, sounds just like the story in the Old Testament. And there is a couple, and there's a, a an evil snake, and there's a great flood. Yeah. And what I do is I ask those kids to go back and where's the source of that story? Where did that story come from? And almost always there is a connection between that the, the original telling of that story um, as it was collected by missionaries. Exactly. And that's when I say, well, you know, you really have to think that 
Now I'm going to, again, I'm not a folklorist, but my, my impression about that is that more than likely missionaries talking to Native Americans who they wanted to convert, that was their job, who when Native Americans told stories about, for example, a flood, and lots mm-hmm. of people who live along river valleys experience floods, and sometimes they're enormous, and it's not surprising that those flood stories, or volcano stories, or earthquake stories, or tornado stories get incorporated into their oral tradition, their mythology, so that I think that, that missionaries would hear a native say, well, in our story is that long ago there was this huge flood, and they go, yes, that's exactly what we're talking about. And then the missionaries fill in the, the blanks about a great boat and and everybody saved on board the ark, the, the two of every kind of saved on board the ark. And so it's called syncretism, where a native culture incorporates this new information that's being brought to them by these interesting strangers from far away. And so if you don't know that that's happening, you just hear their stories and you go, wow, there must have been a universal flood because these Indians talk about it too. Well, that's interesting that you bring that up because um, when we were talking about the uh, that Creek stone, that's the one with the Hebrew writing on it, Uh um, there's actually a group of modern Native Americans who believe that they are descendant from the lost tribes of Israel because they have altered their their cultural oral histories to match these fake artifacts that that have been sold to them as being authentic and so they believe that they are the descendants of the lost tribes of israel it's it's incredibly sad because in my interpretation what's happening there is that native people who have an amazing and important significant culture are their perception is that in order for anybody to accept their culture, they have to somehow glom it on to some Western tradition. And that's just, yeah. it's just, it's really sad. Um, but, you know, the whole notion that the, you know, the it, it, American Indians are somehow connected to the lost tribes of Israel has, uh, as an ongoing, you know, or myth, um, legend that's, that's at least dates back to the 1700s and probably earlier than that. And it's, again, it's part of this selective revisionism. It's it's an ongoing struggle that a lot of Native Native American cultures have when faced with particularly Christian religion here in the States. Because a lot of, I guess, more archaic forms of Christianity really need the Native Americans to not be not connected to the Bible somehow, because that completely wrecks their worldview. Well, if you so, yeah, if you go back far enough, you've got folks um, after it was it became clear to people in the old world that there was an entire population of people living on on two continents that they didn't know existed in the first place. It became mm-hmm. really important to explain well, who are those people? How the hell did they get there? And some folks had figured out, you know, Noah had three sons. Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And and the interpretation before they figured out that there was this entire population of people in the New World, um, some scholars had it figured out. Well, there are three races. There's the Europeans, the Africans, and the Asians. There are three sons of Noah. Therefore, each one right. of the sons of Noah becomes the descendant, the founding father of each of the three races. The problem then that arose when Native Americans were dis- were discovered, um, that's scare quotes. Right. Well, who the hell are they? And there's no fourth son. There, they seem to be a different. Are they a different race? Well, they can't be. Um, how did they get there? We know that after the flood waters subsided, each of the sons went off in a different direction and founded the three different races. So, how did these guys who are across two oceans? How did they get there? Who are they? because they have to be descendants of Noah, Adam and Eve ultimately, but through Noah and Noah's three sons. And that's when you start getting all this, this speculation about right, yeah. how did they get to the, who are they? Are they Israelites? Who went up? Are they Romans? Are they Egyptians? They had to be some already existing historical group who arose after the end of the flood 
but obviously before Columbus got there. Well, and we've talked about this with the mound builders. Sure. Oh, yeah. Um, the whole, you know, who built the mounds? It couldn't possibly have been the Native Americans because that wouldn't make sense. Um, and so that there was that whole mound builder myth for a long time, which actually the debunking thereof kind of was the creation of the Smithsonian as we know yeah, it. it so had a major role in that, right? Yeah, and you know we're not so, exaggerating I mean, here either. I mean, you can go through and find um, well-known scholars, histor historians, who basically said anybody who thinks that uh, that lazy Indians could have right. done the work to build the mounds, that you're crazy. I mean, it literally was a guy who said, it's it, you might as well say people from the moon built the mounds because that's just as likely as Indians having done it. And these are- Funny story well, about that. These are well, <laughs> there you go. But these are well-known scholars who absolutely um, denied any, any remote possibility that the Indians who are nomadic and not couldn't work together and not particularly smart could have built the mound. So that that kind of racist interpretation was rife. Yeah. Uh, and it really wasn't until it was archaeologists who went out looking at people like Thomas Jefferson, but certainly um, Cyrus Thomas of the Smithsonian, Cyrus Thomas, yeah. who went out there and said, you know, guys, yeah, there's plenty of historical evidence and archaeological evidence. These things were built by the descendants of the Native Americans who um, uh, inhabit the, co the continent today. Uh, and that was a long time coming. And you know what? The sad thing is you still have, you have people today denying yeah. that, saying, oh, no, yeah. no, it wasn't. It wasn't oh, they're it was, Celts. They were, or, you know, the, the, one of the groups in the, the, um, the, 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 the Mormon Bible. Yeah, that's a yeah, story yeah. for that's a story for another day. But yes, absolutely. There's there's so much to go over there. Um, well, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we will kind of give our final thoughts on sure. this very important topic. The Archaeology and AL podcast presents a monthly series of lectures on all aspects of archaeology. These lectures are part of the Archaeology in the City program, hosted by the University of Sheffield in England, and are held at the Red Deer Pub near the end of the month. The podcast can be heard a few days later. Check out the Red Deer if you're in the area, or find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the show. And we are back and we are still discussing oral histories, uh, folklore and mythology. Ken, what are your final thoughts? I know you were trying to touch on something earlier before we jumped well, ahead. I think, I think that, that ultimately, uh, here's a great example, I think, of the valid use of oral histories in archaeology. Yes. Um, and again, I'm going to keep harping on my 50 sites. Uh, in one of the sites <laughs> that I visited... Do you Ken, do you have a book? Not yet, but it's coming. <laughs> um, in um, uh, northern New Mexico, there's a place called Crow Canyon. It's not the Crow Canyon in what is it, Colorado, where there's a, an archaeological institute. It's called Crow Canyon because that's what it's called. And it, the the um, the Navajo consider this place. They call this place Denita, Denite, which is their or their place of origin. It is their oral tradition that they didn't come from anybody, anywhere else, that they came up from out of the ground in this place called Dinite and spread from there. In this Crow Canyon, there's a lot of really cool rock art. And it's rock art, some of it is only a few hundred years old because it literally, these were, some of it's older, but some of it is literally the historical petroglyphs produced by, the, by members of the Navajo tribe in the 1500s and even 1600s. And when archaeologists look at those images, they talk to modern Navajo and ask them, who are these guys? What is their significance? What is their meaning? What are the meanings of these images? And it's the Navajo who say, okay, that's a corn plant, and that's the corn plant growing out of a thundercloud, and that is a god, that's an important god, um, and what he's got on his back is a powerful medicine bag. And so that's a wonderful example of archaeologists who want to understand the antiquity of the American Southwest, 
who are asking the native people who have direct personal knowledge about these images, um, asking them, what does this mean to you? Now, that doesn't mean that we don't then go about the process of seeing scientifically, looking at these things statistically, how do they change through time? What are the tools used to produce these things? What are the contexts and associations of different images on different kinds of walls? That's all valid too, but nevertheless, it's this combination of looking at it both from the perspective of, of an outsider, but also getting the perspective of insiders, their oral history, their oral tradition. That's a really nice piece of work. I have no, no sympathy and no patience whatsoever for somebody who is not Navajo, who waltzes into Crow Canyon and says, right. well, that looks like a guy with a, with an air, uh, you know, with, with a scuba thing on his back. So he's an extraterrestrial alien. That is nonsense. And it's not <laughs> particularly useful. I feel like when it comes to this kind of thing, I feel like there's almost two types of archeology span that's being done. There's the, the archeology span where we're recovering oral history and we're preserving uh, oral history and mythology. And then there's the part of it where we're looking at what's in front of us scientifically. And, you know, if the two things don't meet up, that's not necessarily bad. Actually, I don't feel like it's bad at all because the, the, the definitions and the interpretations of the people attached to the images and the history, how that translates for them is just as important as you know, the scientific fact that we're finding there, because the really interesting part happens in the overlap. Sure, absolutely. And you know what, we're not always going to agree. And we, if I mentioned Vindaloria before, and that is yeah. if you're in a situation where if, if a Navajo were to tell me that no, they were always in New Mexico, Arizona, if in fact, their ancestors came up out of the ground in this place, that's your religious belief. That's your ideology. The archaeology, that is the physical evidence and the linguistic evidence shows, well, no, the ancestors of the modern Navajo came from the north and they speak a different language. And the, the physical material evidence indicates that they were not indigenous to the Four Corners region, that they moved into this region and encountered the ancestors of the modern Hopi. Um, and we can agree to disagree. Um, but, and, and the, the direction you take, whichever direction you take, you understand that both of those pieces of information, that is the local interpretation, the, the native interpretation and the scientific interpretation are interesting and, and worthy of consideration and study. There, yeah, there, I mean, I don't feel like there has to be an argument. I don't feel like it has to be an either or because it's, they are both important because the history of the people as as the people see it is just as important as knowing from where the people who became the Navajo came from sure. and knowing what other sister groups they have out there. And I mean, knowing the family tree of the groups that become the Navajo, that's important to us as researchers. It's important that we know these things and it's important that we can categorize and classify and you know, identify these things when they pop up in other areas, because that information means a lot to us right. as researchers. But it's just as important to us in the other aspect of archaeology, which is preservation. It's just as important to be able to have the oral histories and the people's interpretations readily available and, and kept for when a lot of languages, a lot of Native American languages are dying and, and archaeologists are working very hard to preserve those languages. Those languages are very wrapped up in oral tradition and oral history and mythology. Yeah, and we lose those things if we don't maintain the, the oral histories as equally valid and important as the scientific data that we're going to get. Yeah, the, 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 the oral traditions of what the art in Crow Canyon means is absolutely vital and it's significant yes. and it's important um, and should not be denigrated or ignored. It's, it's a part of the whole story and that's important. But again, always remember, 
that that doesn't mean that somebody else gets to walk in there and make up a story about Spaceman or Bigfoot or whatever else. And it also doesn't mean that we're going to view Crow Canyon as an isolated incident. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're reviewing Crow Canyon and its interpretations in the light of the people who are descended from the people who created it. But we're also looking at it as researchers and saying, okay, we've got Crow Canyon here and we've got this other location way over here. And there's a lot of similarities between these different, you know, images that are being used and the stories that are being told. Maybe there's a connection and we'll go investigate that. We're not going to view them both as completely isolated and completely unrelated. And for anybody listening to this podcast, Crow Canyon is land that's that's maintained by the Bureau of Land Management. It's open to the public. And there are some really very easy and uh, hikes through some amazing um, landscapes. And you'll see some very, very interesting rock art. So you should go there. Oh, you absolutely should go there. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so is that your final thought? That's then? my final thought. Go visit Crow Canyon right. and see it for yourself. <laughs> Go visit Crow Canyon. Final thought. But I'm if agreeing. You're going to do that. Wait until my book is out. Buy a copy of the book and take it with you. <laughs> and take it with yeah, you. Of course. And take pictures of yourself and your book next to the rock art in Crow Canyon, and then send those well, pictures. I'm to actually Ken. hoping. I'm actually hoping putting together a WordPress site. So that once the book is out, I really do want people to go to these places and send me pictures and tell me about their reactions and also to, to maybe say, hey, you know what, Fader, you have 50 cool sites, but there's there's one that I went to that's not in your book that you should be, it should go in your book when you expand it to 75 sites. And I'm, I'm, I appreciate that as well. Okay. Well, Ken, thank you very much. Absolutely. Great fun. Always good. Thank you. See you Talk to you later. Yeah, you betcha. No, we don't do a dinosaur. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash Archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs! This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.